We're back. I'm Cody. I'm Emily. And we're back with another episode of Misery Manor. But before we get started, you know what to do. Take off those shoes and leave your manners at the door. Hey, y'all. Hey. We're back, we're back, we're back. Do we have any business? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, guys, we do have some exciting news. We, Are we telling them? I mean, we'll say what we did. Me okay. and Emily just, we got um, contacted by a TV production company to potentially be the host of this... Host or just... Us, like, well, they call him. them hosts, like, oh, okay. you're telling, you know, but of uh, this true crime documentary series that will be streaming. I don't think I can say the platforms, but no. we interviewed last week for it and went well. So, hopefully, Misery Manor will be, be coming to a TV near you. I know we have beautiful voices, but we also have really good uh, TV faces as well. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that. If you've peeped our Instas. Actually, we need to post a photo of us on the Instagram because people... Well, I think we did, and I commented on it, and I was like, look how adorable we are. And then someone was like, that's what you have to say about the case. I actually had the same thought. So I was like, well, she posted that on this horrible murder case. (laughs) But it was cute. And whoever did that deleted it, so... Well, yeah. But yeah, so stay tuned for that. We'll, of course, tell everybody, like, once we hear the final, you made it. But keep your fingers crossed, your nipples crossed, the toes, everything crossed, because... We deserve to grace your TVs, Mama and Daddy. <laughs> Why does it always sound more creepy when you say Dad? Mama's cute, but Daddy's like fucking weird. Daddy is weird. Um. Okay. Well, I don't really have any business. Of course, if you want to be a Patreon, come be a Patreon. We are going to be, like I said, uplo- uploading some more stuff. We're in the uh, process of getting some, like, what is it called? Enamel. The little enamel pins. Enamel mm-hmm. pins made for people that. I don't know which tier we're going to put it in, but if you are a Patreon... I think it's, like, two and up. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then, yeah, so tier two and up, if you buy into our Patreon on our Instagram, um, you will be getting some of that good stuff. We have more letters going out this week, right? We yeah. have postcards coming postcards in. Postcards coming yeah. in this week, and we'll send those out to all of our new Patreons. But, yeah, we would love to have you there. We're going to post early... I can't talk today. We are going to post <laughs> early episodes... And all that jazz. So get into it. But um yeah. I think that's everything, that's right? It. So rate right, review. Oh, and hello up, to um or don't. Hello to Portugal and Czech Czech Republic. Oh, that's right. Those are our two new countries that have joined in. So glad to have you. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, Emily. Okay. Emily has a um, story for us today. So take it away, Mama. Okay, Daddy. All right. Okay, so this is about the broomstick killer. The broomstick. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So the name of this intrigued me because 
I'm like, wow, is he a witch? Like, what's happening? Oh, no, I didn't get witch. I got custodian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's not a custodian. Okay. But um, actually, I was researching another case that I think I had seen an episode of Forensic Files on. I was telling you at dinner. Mm -hmm. Um, And I couldn't find too much information. And then I found out that he was actually the person that committed the murder in this other case I was looking at, which was was actually like a... um, unsolved case okay for a while and so they ended up linking it to him but whatever and him being the broomstick murderer yes so his name is kenneth allen mcduff and i think through it i just call him kenneth okay so um like sometimes i choose last names sometimes i choose first names but uh there's a part with his dad in here so it's just easier to go by his first name right so Kenneth Allen McDuff was born at 201 Linden Street in Rosebud, Texas, which like when I saw is I don't Houston. I don't know. I'll look it up while you keep talking. But when I was like Rosebud, I wonder if they have a Rosebud motel like on Schitt's Creek. Oh, yeah. But they they probably don't. So anyway, um, so this guy um, liked guns from a young age. Um, Kenneth was one of six children to John and Addie McDuff. Um, that was weird that I said that about the guns right away because I oh, think I meant to put that down further. So How far is it? Rosebud is in between um, Austin and Dallas. It's kind of near college. It's north of College Station near Waco and Colleen. Okay. Yeah. Because there is a part where he's in Austin. So the case I referred to earlier was actually in Austin. Okay. takes place in Austin. So um, his parents, John and Addie McDuff... He's one of six kids. The McDuffs weren't the friendliest family in Rosebud, Rosebud, um, and were even considered quite strange amongst neighbors and friends. They attended church regularly, and the parents worked hard to support themselves. Um, John was a cement finisher who made a lot of money during the building boom that was going on at the time. Um, he was a tight-lipped and kept mainly to his business and work, leaving the family matters to his wife, Kenneth's mother. Now, Addie was a large, domineering woman. Um, like heavyweight? I I think she was just, like, like large and in large. charge. Okay. Yeah. Um, Not the heavyweight. <laughs> well, I think she was larger, yeah, too. Yeah, just but, like a larger woman. Yeah. A hussy. Yeah, sure. Um, but she ruled over her four daughters and two sons. She operated and maintained the washeteria across the street from the family home. And Addie McDuff was known around town as the pistol... Packing mama. Okay. Oh, so she meant business. Yeah, she literally carried her gun around with her everywhere. So due to her, quote, propensity toward violence and a habit of carrying a firearm. Okay. So she's really chill. Um, Newspaper editor John Kilgore describes the McDuffs as very dedicated to their children, attentive, protective, making sure they grew up knowing how to work and work hard. Some people thought the parents were too protective, particularly Addie. Addie and the three oldest of the McDuff daughters lavished attention on Kenneth and treated him as, quote, a young god, somehow above the rules that restrained other children, like other children in the house. So right. he got so away he was with... the favorite. Yes, he got away with everything. Well, probably because he was the only boy and the youngest. Well, there were two. He had a brother. Oh, okay. He did have a brother. Yes, there were four girls and two boys. But Damn. this plays in a lot to basically how he gets away with his crimes yeah um kenneth wasn't the youngest child either um though he was regarded as the baby of the family 
Oh, like they were like, that's my baby, but he's not actually the the baby. Yeah. But it it is interesting to note here that it's reported that John, his dad, didn't share the same devotion to Kenneth as the the mother. Yeah. So, and he has some quotes later. Okay. (laughs) Um, Growing up, Kenneth had no responsibility. He always had money and usually wore new clothes. He didn't follow the rules and didn't think he was expected to. If problems arised at school, it was always the school to blame and never Kenneth. And that goes for Addie, too. So his mom was just, like, always blaming the school. It was never her kid that was the fault. Learned behavior, then. Exactly. So if the school tried any form of discipline towards Kenneth, his mother would rush to the school enraged and she would still be carrying her pistol that she loved so much. What time period was this again? This is in like the 60s. Well, okay. So she just was like, yeah. well, then, and it's and in that, Texas. And that makes him think, well, I can just keep doing it then. My mom's just going to come to bat for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so, and not only that, like his sisters as well. Okay. You know, so yeah. he could do no wrong no matter where he was. Um, but, you know. Those were different times. Uh, Like his mother, Kenneth Kenneth also admired guns and loved firing at small creatures with his twenty-two rifle, as it is described in the Unsolved Mysteries article. I'm not sure what, like, they didn't really describe what small living creatures, but I'm guessing, like, Like smaller. Like rodents and stuff, yeah. Yeah. And maybe, like, cats and things like that, Um, because he was terrible. Um, He was feared by the locals even as a kid. He fought with boys older than him and quickly became known by the local authorities. So you can imagine he didn't really have many friends. And, I mean, I'm not... It doesn't really elaborate much with his sisters and his brother if they were more scared of him. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know that three of the four sisters were, like, devoted to him and then you have that leftover sister and the other brother and it doesn't really go in much to like their relationship with him but um kenneth mcduff underwent a subtle but deadly change following uh oh shit i missed a whole paragraph okay (laughs) the only close friend can oh wait here we go the only close friend kenneth had was his brother okay so um, who listened to the stories of how society had mistreated Kenneth and counseled him on the proper response. Screw them. So even his brother was like, if anyone's mean to you, if anyone tells you that what you're doing is wrong, they're the ones that are wrong. Right. So just keep doing what you're keep doing. Keep doing you. Yeah. So sometime in the fall of 1964, when Kenneth was about 17 years old, um, he started spending his evening evenings breaking into buildings and prowling for sex. He confided to Lonnie that he had raped a woman, cut her throat, and left her for dead in a ditch. Lonnie told him to go to bed and forget it. Who's Lonnie? Lonnie is his brother. Oh, okay. So, I mean, that was really the only person I think he really ever, like... Confided in? Yeah. But, I mean, that shows you right there. No responsibility. No, He's like, yeah, I raped this... Bed. Yeah. He was like... Good night, little brother. Uh, what a um, bedtime story. Yeah. Um, okay, let me see. I lost my place. Uh, not long after that, Kenneth was sentenced to 12 four-year prison terms, okay. served concurrently. So that means at the same time right. for over a dozen robberies committed across the different uh, Texas counties. So that's another important thing to note because at this time in the 60s, when you're going into different cities and different counties, they're not sharing information. And mm-hmm. that's what makes a whole big mess of people and like connecting their crimes. Right. Um, he was around 18 at the time. The rape and attempted murder were never even reported. So... 
Otherwise, the parole board might not have looked so casually on Kenneth when it decided to release him in December 1965. So soon after this release, Kenneth was sent back to prison for violating his parole because he got into a fight that was race-fueled with a group of people. Okay. Kenneth was massively racist and just a terrible human on all levels. So that's his first time he gets out of jail. Kenneth McDuff underwent a subtle but deadly change following that first parole. The belief that he had committed murder and gotten away with it, coupled with the short, easy prison term he served for pulling more than a dozen burglaries, hardened him, gave him exaggerated sense of invulnerability. He wasn't a boy any longer. He was a man, having grown to six feet, three inches, and 200 plus pounds, his broad shoulders and large hands causing him to look even larger. The evil of his expression was accented by a crooked smile and a bulb-like Popeye nose. Yeah, he's not cute. Um, though prison had not taught Kenneth how to make friends, it taught him how to attract smaller, weaker sidekicks mm-hmm. who could be controlled through intimidation and counted on to take part in whatever twisted schemes appealed to him. Kenneth seemed to enjoy having a witness to his debauchery. So, It's kind of like... Um someone to do his dirty work too exactly and someone he can probably if shit does go bad yeah put uh put the blame on them exactly so in july of 1966 kenneth met and made a new friend by the name of roy dale green they met through a mutual acquaintance named richard boyd remember him Mm -hmm. roy lived with his mother in marlin and worked for kenneth's dad remember kenneth's dad's like in the construction business Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Roy was two years younger than Kenneth and was completely mesmerized with the sadistic sex tales Kenneth told him. Kenneth also showed... What does sadistic mean? I hear it all the time. I feel like I know, but what is it like... Sadistic is like super fucked up. Like, I'm not like the worst, right? Like, just like, is it like a fetish thing? It can be. Okay. So like, you'll see what his... Let me describe what his... And that's sadistic. Okay. And, yeah. But there, okay. Do you want me to like look up the formal no, no, definition? No, no, I got it. No, okay. I knew what it, I just, in case other people, because I had to like look it up. I just didn't want. Yeah. Got well, it. this will explain it further okay. for those who don't really, maybe don't quite understand him. So Kenneth also showed Roy some of these things he was into. Once in the room of Roy's mother, because remember he lives with his mom. Yeah. Kenneth demonstrated one of his favorite things to do. So here's a trigger. Pinning a girl to the ground and squirting a tube of deep heat into her vagina. Deep heat is comparable to icy hot. Oh, fuck. I don't even have a vagina. That made my thing, whatever, quiver. <laughs> Did your <laughs> pussy quiver? Oh, my God. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth would brag to Roy about raping and strangling women, which Roy didn't immediately believe. That is until Saturday, August 6, 1966 when Kenneth and Roy were pouring concrete for Kenneth's father. After they finished up around 5 p.m., Kenneth and Roy decided to drive into Fort Worth in Kenneth's new Dodge Charger, the car his mother gave him when he was released from prison. So uh, he was even rewarded. And remember, he was young when he got out of prison. Yeah. This is a really plush, like, your rug. rug. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, oh, and Kenneth had his revolver with him because why not? So, and it's also Texas in the 60s, but not much different from today. Right. Um, so they're in the Dodge. They're driving to Fort Worth. They stopped by 7-Eleven for a six-pack and visited a friend and then went out for hamburgers. So 
Okay. They're just kind of hanging around hanging town. Like, I think back in the 60s, like, people just, like, drive in their car, like, younger yeah, people, and just, just like, kind of, like, cruise. Music yeah. And cruise. Yeah. Yeah. So, most people are probably, like, high school guys looking at girls, and right. that's not what they were doing. So, um, this same night, Robert Brand, he was 18, his girlfriend, Edna Sullivan, who was 16, and Brand's cousin, Mark Dunman, who was also 16, had spent the night at the drive-in movie and after, at about 10 p.m., were parked in a baseball field in the town of Everman, which is in Tarrant County. I don't know really yep, the... that's... Okay. Mm-hmm. Near Fort Worth. Okay. Around 150 yards away sat Kenneth McDuff and Roy Green. The two men approached the teens in their car, and Kenneth immediately ordered them into the trunk of their car. Kenneth then drove the teens forward onto the highway and onto a field with Roy following behind in Kenneth's Dodge. Upon arrival, Kenneth opens the trunk and states that he wants the young lady out, pulling her out by her arm and telling Roy to lock her in the trunk of the Dodge. He then claims that he would have to knock him off, referring to the boys. Dunman and Brand, on their knees, still in the trunk of their car, were begging and pleading for their lives when Kenneth shot them both in the face killing them he oh. shot brand twice and dunman three times then lifted dunman's head up by his hair and shot him once more in the face roy explains later that he could see the fire from the gun as kenneth shot them roy said he covered his ears and looked away but saw kenneth's face this peaceful expression kenneth ordered roy to wipe any fingerprints from the ford because remember kenneth was driving it but yet roy's the one that's like cleaning it up mm-hmm. um and then the trunk wouldn't shut for some reason possibly a bullet hit something and caused the trunk door to malfunction um so they basically backed the ford up against a fence instead to kind of like hide the bodies that were inside mm-hmm. um and then keep in mind edna sullivan is still alive at this point and she's in the trunk of their dodge yeah um roy and kenneth then drove to another location with sullivan where they trigger took turns raping Sullivan multiple times before Kenneth demands Sullivan to sit down on the side of the road. Roy recalls Sullivan crying out, I think you ripped something. Oh. Keep in mind, she's a 16-year-old girl. Oh my God, that made my heart yes. fall. Um, I think you ripped something. And oh, she no. said that as Kenneth was raping her. So she's saying this to Roy, and I think, while Roy is a piece of shit, you'll see that she kind of is, like, taking to him because he is the weaker yeah. of the two. Okay. Um, Kenneth forced her head into the gravel and began to choke her with a broomstick handle. So he basically has the huge handle of it up against her neck, and he's stepping on it. Yeah. Crushing, Oof. like, her trachea. Ugh. So that's where his name comes from, but this is the only documented case in murder of him using this as a tool. Okay. So, um, yeah. Sullivan began flailing her arms and legs and Kenneth yelled at Roy to hold her legs down while Roy subdued her. Kenneth continued to choke Sullivan with the broomstick until she died. This and only this crime is what gave Kenneth right his name. They dumped her body over a fence, which like, that's such a simple phrase, but you have to think, like, how heavy a person is. Yeah, that's why there's body. a phrase of called dead weight, and they just threw her over a fence. It, 
16 year old child. Um, and after they did that, they got back in the car and headed to a Hillsborough gas station for some soda before burying the boys' wallets and their own blood stained underwear on the side of the road. Oh my God, blood stained underwear because they ripped something. Well, because they raped her and she was probably like, yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, it's like very, it's a very violent. Rape is sadistic. Well, okay, yeah. there's. It always shocks me when people can do stuff like that and then. They get in the car and they go get them a soda. Like. Oh, yeah. Oh, and my like, God. Were they, like, taking off their clothes together and they were like. Let's throw these out the window? No, they buried them. Or buried them. Ew. And then so they're free balling in the car drinking soda. Yeah, which is also weird. <laughs> Whatever. The next morning, Kenneth. Here he is burying again. The next morning, Kenneth buried his revolver next to Roy's garage and called their buddy Richard Boyd the guy that introduced them, Mm -hmm. to wash Kenneth's car at his house. And he agreed. So it says Roy's garage, but remember, Roy lives with his mom. Yeah. Okay, so the next day, because we're going into another day, Mm -hmm. is August 8th, which is my grandmother's birthday. Roy confessed to Boyd's parents, who then told Roy's mother, who convinced Roy to turn himself and Kenneth into authorities. And he did. Roy was received a 25-year prison sentence, while Kenneth received three death sentences, which were later commuted to a life sentence. How do you get three deaths? And how do you get three deaths? And you can there's be, only one person involved. Oh, I mean, you can get you can get thousands of years in jail too. Yeah, but three death sentences sounds like there's three people, right? Because he killed three people. Oh. So he got a death sentence for oh. each of those oh, kids. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but then they, um, but if you heard the last part, they commuted it to a life sentence. So let's talk about what a life sentence meant in Texas during the 1960s. Mm. It meant serving a minimum of 10 years in prison before being allowed parole. So Roy served 13 years of his 25-year sentence before being paroled. Upon Kenneth's convict, because did Roy actually kill anyone? No. He raped Edna, and he was there for the murder and helped, you know, cover the mm-hmm. bodies and whatnot, but he didn't actually commit and pull the trigger. Okay. I'm sorry. I Going back to the three, I totally forgot about the two boys that she was with that were murdered because it happened yes. so quickly. Okay. It did. Yeah. That made sense. I'm he so just, sorry. like, told them to get in the car. They drove to a different location. Well, yeah, what would they do for him? He wanted to be statistic. Statistic. <laughs> yes. Got it. I mean. You- with the female. Yeah. So upon Kenneth's conviction, his father, John, is quoted as saying to a lawman, which I'm assuming is like... Like somebody in a law office. I guess. Okay. Um, Like a government person. I don't know. If I believe he did what you say, the state wouldn't have to kill him. I'd do it myself. Now this part is whack. Kenneth was actually sent to the electric chair three times. Mm Mm-hmm. But received last-minute stays of execution all three times. For But how? Was there, like, something that... Like, just new right. evidence? Okay. They're just those people who always seem to creep by in life no matter what. Like a cockroach. And if there's anything worse than a fucking roach, it's Kenneth Allen McDuff. <laughs> yeah. When Roy re- 
when Roy turned himself and Kenneth in, he recalled Kenneth bragging about raping Sullivan and explained that she wasn't his first rape, nor would she be his last. Then he remarked that killing a woman's like killing a chicken. They both squawk. Ew. So it just kind of gives you a little bit of... How horrible he is. So, like, he told him that. Never thought, oh, he's going to turn me in. He did turn him in. Mm-hmm. Eh, nothing's going to happen to me. He gets the death sentence. Then it's turned into a life sentence. Then they, I guess, turned it back to death sentence. He's sent to the electric chair. And then he's taken and he out gets of it. stays of executions. So... Roy, Roy is still living today, and to say that his that this incident fucked him up would be an understatement. After serving as the prosecution's star witness against Kenneth McDuff and his stay in prison, Roy moved back to Marlin, where he stays in the family home, drinking at a bar his sister owns in town. So that quote he said about um, what Kenneth said about killing mm-hmm. women and chickens and how it's yeah. comparable, he said that at, at the... When he... Uh, when he was um, the prosecution star witness. So he, you know, just to kind of, Mm -hmm. I guess, paint a... I I would be terrified if I were him. Yo, shitless. Yeah. But at that time, he's like, oh, he's going to stay in prison, so it's fine. Yeah. No. In his six years on death row and his 17 years among the general prison population, Kenneth wasn't necessarily a model prisoner, but he knew how to keep out of the spotlight. Hard cases like Kenneth's are given maximum leeway. As long as they are not putting a knife into someone or openly smuggling drugs, they can do almost whatever they want in prison. After transferring to the retrieve unit near Angleton. Yep, that's Dallas area too. Oh, okay. Well, there's also an Angleton like right by work. Oh, yeah, there is. Um, Kenneth became the boss of his tier of cells. In that position, a man of Kenneth's so-called talents would have enjoyed not only the blessing of the wardens, but substantial power among inmates, meaning, among other things, that he was able to influence which inmate was assigned as his cellmate. So, these guys, (laughs) and this, like, I don't know what it's like now, because I just, like, was kind of researching it in this time, but he basically, like, ruled the whole floor he was on. Yeah, that's... And he probably fucking loved... Well, he loved it. I think a lot of it had to do with his personality. Well, and he's huge in stature, right? He's yeah, six foot he's three, a big over guy. 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in jail, that's what you connect with the person that's going to protect you. Exactly. So, while Kenneth was at uh, Retrieve, which is that unit, um, his cellmate, or punk, to use the vernacular, provided whatever McDuff... Re- or whatever Kenneth required in the way of sex and drugs which he squirreled away in a red balloon inserted up his, up his rectum. <laughs> Keistering drugs, they call it. Not your garden variety punk. This particular one was large and cold-eyed with an excess of body hair and tattoos, but his menacing appearance was handicapped by the fact that he had offended the Aryan Brotherhood oh, and shit. faced the daily threat of assassination. It was a measure of Kenneth's prestige that he was able to protect his punk without tarnishing his own good record. I don't know if they mean, like, his bitch. No, that's his bitch. Like, they call it a punk. That's his little bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so he upset the Aryan bro. That's the white gang. Yeah, and I told you that Kenneth... Is racist, like, is too. Is massively racist, yeah. Yeah. So, like, back when he got arrested, when he had violated his parole because he was having an argument with... And they were, like, younger black boys. He was, like, telling them he was going to kill him. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
disgusting. He's a piece of shit, dude. Not the jail sex. Yeah. He liked it. Okay, but I have to tell you, so that guy, they said he had tattoos. I don't know what I was watching. It might have been, like... What guy? The punk? Yeah. It said he had, like, a bunch of tattoos and stuff. But... It would, might have, maybe it was like on weeds or something way back in the day, but like apparently there's a thing in prison that were like guys that are like that mm-hmm. that have that role in prison. Mm-hmm. They get tattoos of like boobies on their back. Oh shit! Oh, so like when they're yes, they're like staring at titters. Oh my Isn't god! Isn't that vile? Like, well, that's the funny, but it's also sick that a tattoo of titties will make the guy jizz. I'm just like, they could just tape a picture. Or you can close your eyes and think of some. Uh, (laughs) Well, the thing is, he has them. Yeah, but they're probably not plump. Remember that picture you sent me yesterday? Oh, yeah, that video. (laughs) Okay, continue. Sorry. Okay, and so now we're going into the 80s. In the late 80s, Governor Bill Clements ordered the Texas Parole Board to release around 1,000 low-risk inmates every five working days. Even after 36,000 of these low-risk offenders had been paroled, sorry, the Texas prison system was still overcrowded. On October 11, 1989, due to prison overcrowding and alleged bribery of the prison board, on Addie McDuff's behalf, Kenneth Allen McDuff was released from prison. Kenneth was one of 20 former death row inmates and 127 murderers to be released from prison. So he still walks this earth today? The story's not over. Oh. Right away, Kenneth began working for $4 an hour as a gas station attendant. Oh, and he took one class at Texas State Technical College in Waco. Three days after his release, Kenneth killed 29-year-old Seraphia Parker. Her beaten and strangled body was discovered on October 14, 1989, in the town of Temple, which is like, yeah. That's where my grandma lives! Which is like 50 miles outside of Waco. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And yeah, wow. Okay, and that's a small town. Yes. He was sent back to prison shortly after this, but not for Seraphia's murder. In fact, to this day, he has never been charged for her murder. So, Kenneth went back to prison for, again, violating his parole by making death threats to black youth in Rosebud. He just loves doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, no worries. Mama comes to the rescue. Addie McDuff paid $1,500 to two Huntsville attorneys, plus an extra additional $700 for expenses. The expenses were described as a fee for evaluating Kenneth's prospect of release. So I don't know if that means, like, by doctors or therapists mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, or psychologists, I guess. Um, so Huntsville is really close to where my parents live. Mm-hmm. Just thought I would point that out. Yeah. Um, it's, like, by the Woodlands and Conroe. Oh, yeah. Like, you'll be driving on 59 and you see, like, mm-hmm. the, the buses statu- and stuff. Yeah. Well, you'll big stature. Statue. Oh, yeah, but I'll see, like, buses, like, on 59 with the inmates, like, going back and forth. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that's where death row is. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, on October 6th, 1990, I was just a little babe. Um, Kenneth was yet again released from prison. According to Texas Monthly, Sheriff Pamplin, who knew him as a kid, like, disrupting things in town... Uh, He personally knew Kenneth Allen McDuff. Mm -hmm. He stated that on the very day Kenneth was released, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but 
one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up. And when that happens, the man you need to look for is Kenneth McDuff. So he knew him from a teen. And he knew this was going to continue to happen. Yeah, he's like, because he has no responsibility. He thinks he has no remorse. There's nothing. And everybody in his life has shown him that he can get away with it. Exactly. So he's like, I'm telling you that it's going to happen again and that he's going to be your guy. One day later, on October 15th, Kenneth was seen at a Waco motel arguing with 17-year-old Regina Moore. Shortly after, Kenneth and Regina drove to an area by Highway 6 where he tied both Regina's arms and legs with stockings before killing her. She was missing for seven years by the time her body was found on September 29, 1997. How, how was she found? I don't even know. I think, oh, I do know. He told them where she was. Oh, my God. So, yeah, he does end up telling them. But there is some stuff he didn't say. Okay. So, um, now that he is back on the streets, Kenneth starts using and becomes addicted to crack cocaine while attending school at TSTC and staying in a dorm on campus. Kenneth comes to a close call with law enforcement October 10th, 1991, so it's a different year, when he came across Brenda Thompson in Waco. Kenneth tied her up in his car, and as he's driving, he comes upon a Waco Police Department checkpoint. Kenneth stopped his car as an officer begins to approach him, and at this time, Brenda starts repeatedly kicking at the windshield, cracking it in multiple places. She's fighting him, but to no avail. Kenneth accelerated very quickly at the officers, with them having to jump out of the way to avoid being run over. The officers jumped into their vehicles and began pursuit of Kenneth, but it was so late at night and dark, plus Kenneth had turned off his headlights and was driving down the wrong way on a one-way street, making mm-hmm. it even more difficult for the officers to find him. Once he lost the cops, he parked his truck in a wooded area near US 84 Highway, and Kenneth killed Brenda, and her body is not found until 1998. I feel like, to hear that I should mention that Brenda worked as a sex worker at the time of her death, which could very well be why her body wasn't discovered until then. Because no one was looking for her. Yeah. That's sad. So, um, but she fought him, like, I mean, and that is one thing, she was kicking at the windshield and she cracked it, so that Mm -hmm. is one thing to note, that, like, windshields and then the back, the back windshield, Mm -hmm. you can kick them from the outside, or from the inside, and that's how you can break them. Oh, yeah. My mom taught me that. (laughs) Nice. That's my mom taught me a lot of things. She didn't teach me how to kick out a back window. Oh, my mom taught me. I remember before I could read, she'd be like, do you see that sign up there? Like an exit sign. Like Mm -hmm. when we were in a movie theater, she's like, if something happens, do not look back. You and your sister run. Oh my God. My mom was like, she was ready. Oh yeah. During the Christmas holidays of 1991, this is the case that I was originally going to do. And then I found out it was linked to him. Okay. So Christmas holidays, 1991, Colleen Reed was running errands the night of December 29th in Austin. First she went to the bank, then she stopped by a local car wash. That same night, in the very same area, Kenneth McDuff and his buddy, Alva Hank Worley, which I think I just end up calling him Hank because Alva is a fucking weird name. Um, They were driving around town looking for drugs. So Kenneth stopped Colleen at the car wash and, or he spotted her at the car wash and pulled his car in the basin next to her. So I'm sure she's just like doing her thing. It's loud because mm-hmm. she's washing her car and she's 
doing errands. So she's like, probably wants to get home because it's like the last thing she was going to do and she was going to go home. And, um, this is so scary. He immediately, but quietly went around to the back of his vehicle and then grabbed her by the throat, lifting her body up. So her toes were like just touching the ground because she was tiny, Mm -hmm. Um, but he's huge. So Kenneth dragged her to his car and ordered Hank to keep her under control in the back seat. During the chaos, Colleen was able to scream and that scream was heard by two nearby brothers who then ran over to the car wash to investigate. There they found Colleen's abandoned Mazda. The brothers went to the police and reported that they had seen a tan Thunderbird twice that evening, once driving slowly around the neighborhood and later driving down the wrong way down a one-way street, something Kenneth loves to do because he's a fucking weirdo. Is that, that's not the same instance? The, no, but he... just another time? Okay. Yes, that's just like some weird shit he did. So Kenneth and Hank drove Colleen outside the city of Austin and pulled over on the side of the road. This is when Kenneth switched places with Hank in the back seat. Hank begins to drive while Kenneth proceeds to strip Colleen of her clothes, binds her hands behind her back, and then, trigger, extinguishes his cigarette on her vagina. Oh. So, like, total disregard of female life. Like, he, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Ouch. He's... So, he then rapes her. Hank pulls over, and he and Kenneth trade places again. Hank takes off his clothes and forces Colleen to perform, I don't know how to spell this word, but fellatio on him, which is... That's oral sex. I know what it is, but I don't know how to spell it. Spell it or say it. I don't know how to spell it, oh. so I wrote fellatio oh, yeah. on him. head. I just hate that word so much. Oh. Anyway, he forced her to do that, and then um, he raped her. Okay. So... You remember back when we were talking about Roy Green? Mm-hmm. So that's Hank now. He's okay. the weaker one that, yeah. So, um, yeah. So he's doing that. Kenneth finds another dirt road, pulls over, and rapes Colleen yet again. This part kills me. Um, they then put Colleen from the back seat of the car onto her feet. And she begs and pleads with Hank, the lesser of the two evils. I hate this so much. And she's like resting her head on his shoulder and begging him to please not let Kenneth hurt her anymore. And Kenneth sees this. He grabs her by the throat and shoves her into the trunk of his car. He drove Hank home and promises to him that he was going to use up Colleen, which was his own term for murder. Ew. It's just so sad. That is sad. A week before finals, Kenneth was uh, just disappears from school. Because remember, he's like taking one class in college. Right. Um, late on March 1st, 19... 19- which, by the way, if you're taking one class in college, like that's great and wonderful. But he's a piece of shit. So if I want to make fun of him, I'm going to make fun of him. So, late on March 1st, 1992, Kenneth parks his tan Thunderbird at New Road Inn right outside of Waco and vanishes. That same night, 22-year-old Melissa Northrup is kidnapped from a Waco Quick Pack where she worked just a mile away from the inn. Melissa was Kenneth's senior manager's wife. Okay. Mm -hmm. Kenneth had grown an unhealthy fascination with her. Melissa's body was found several weeks later floating in a gravel pit in Dallas County. Her car was also found nearby. 
A few weeks after Northup's disappearance, police found the naked and badly decomposed body of 22-year-old Valencia Joshua in a shallow grave dug in the wooded area behind the TSTC campus. Valencia was last seen alive February 24th. She was reportedly on campus that night looking for Kenneth as they had arranged to meet. Kenneth's sudden absence from school caught the parole board's attention along with his mother's. She was so worried about him that she filed a missing persons report. So, not because of the murders are they connecting him, but he just isn't showing up for school. So, they're like, all right, something's fishy here. And now his mom is, like, freaking out and, Mm -hmm. you know, files that report. So, the biggest problem for investigators was that Kenneth's victims were spread out across several Texas counties. And we all know this proves difficult in coordinating an investigation that links all these crimes. But the police found out he was peddling drugs and had an illegal firearm, which are both federal offenses. March 6, 1992, a local state attorney issues a warrant for the arrest of Kenneth Allen McDuff. And by May, they had him. They had made a major breakthrough because Hank Worley was a known acquaintance of Kenneth's Bell County Sheriff's Department brought him in for questioning. Hank admitted to his involvement in the kidnapping and rape of Colleen Reed but explains that it wasn't Kenneth's, that it was Kenneth's idea and that he orchestrated all of it. Hank was held in a Travis County jail while the police continued to search for Kenneth. But Kenneth McDuff was in Kansas City working at a garbage collection company under the name of Richard Fowler. Fowler, sorry, I was yawning. He vanished before police could find him. Hank was sentenced to 40 years after pleading guilty to his part in the case of Colleen Reed. Worley's statement, Hank, sorry, Hank's statement was released to the media, giving the McDuff task force what it needed most, national attention. It wasn't long after the bodies of Melissa Northrup and Valencia Joshua's were found that Kenneth McDuff was featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted, generating 50 tips. One day later, Kansas City, Missouri police received a call from a viewer named Gary Smith, a co-worker of Kenneth's who explained where to find him. So um, he was watching America's Most Wanted, and then when his face popped up, he suddenly realized that the womanizing garbage truck worker known as Fowler was in fact a killer from Texas named Kenneth Allen McDuff. So um, a few hours later at the city dump, Kenneth surrendered without a struggle. Um, So he was actually America's most wanted 208th successful capture. Oh. Yeah. He even tried to... I hate it when they do this, but I kind of love it. He even tried to represent himself in court, but could never provide truthful accounts of the night the woman was killed. Um, So, like, any woman that they're talking about, he could never, like, give them details. He was sentenced to death for the murder of Melissa Northrop. Following that trial, he was then tried for the murder of Colleen Reed and was more disrupted this time around. Although her body was never found, he was convicted of killing her based on strong circumstantial evidence and eyewitness accounts. He was again sentenced to death. Following his arrest, Texas began an overhaul to ensure that no criminals like him were able to get out on parole. They changed the rules and improved the monitoring upon release. Collectively, these new rules in Texas became known as McDuff Laws. Oh, because of him. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing that came from it. (laughs) Yeah. 
The location of Regina Moore and Brenda Thompson's bodies were provided as his execution date neared, so he did come clean. Yeah. He was even taken out under tight security to provide the location of the remains of Colleen Reed. On on November 18, 1998, McDuff was put to death by lethal injection in the Huntsville prison. Um, Bye-bye. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. My sources were Texas Monthly articles written by Gary Cartwright, unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, criminallyintrigued.com, and Culture Crossfire. So how many... Oh, and Crime Museum, sorry. How many um, deaths in all, do you know? Or how many murders? Um, So he killed the three, four, five, six, seven... Like close to ten. He killed at least... He killed at least eight that I mentioned. Because remember, he told his brother that he killed that girl. That girl before. That's so fu- not funny, but um, that he's considered the broomstick murder when he only did that once. Yeah. But, I mean, hell, what a name. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know. But, yeah, he's, uh, upon any release, he was just, like, immediately let out. So. Yeah. Well, because he's been, like I said, taught over and over again that he doesn't have, there's not much punishment for what he does. So exactly. he's just like, I'm just going to keep doing it. Right. So I'm sure his uh, lethal injection little ceremony was interesting. Well, now he's burning in hell. Oh, God. Bitch. Yeah, so he's terrible, but that that's my story. Well, if anybody ever tries to murder me with a broomstick, at least sweep this cat hair off the floor, please, because I think it's all up in my eyes right now, <laughs> and I'm like, my eyes are shut. So, um, yeah. Do you think it's the rug? No, it's the cat hair, because they like to lay on it. Oh, well, stop touching it. I know. Anyway, okay, thanks, everyone. Bye, babe. Wait, rate, review, subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. Misery Manor Podcast is our Insta. Peace, love, and broomsticks, never.